passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Brandon Thurston from WrestleNomics is up next, and we're going to follow Brandon with John Pollock from Post Wrestling. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. But we can't ignore the math, okay? We can't ignore the data. Go on Google Trends, type in your name, then type in mine. You're a straight line. I'm a pyramid. I like the very direct question on that. Television ratings, downward spiral. Fire rate, plummeting. The time is now to turn the math around. Welcome to Pollock and Thurston for Wednesday, December the 20th. This will be the final Pollock and Thurston dot, dot, dot until 2024. We will be back in two weeks time. If you uh, are so generous to give us one week off for the holidays to recharge, but how are you today, Brandon? I'm, I'm good. I know we're going to talk about the iron claw. I will, will be joined by Irv Mushnick in a little while, but I will be the only person who has not yet seen the movie. I understand. I am seeing it tomorrow though, which is like this movie's coming out on Friday. But it's apparently it's at a theater tomorrow around near me. So I'm going to go see it. Okay. Well, I, about an hour ago, I tweeted that Irv Mushnick would be joining us on the eve of the film's release and then realized, oh, wait a minute. It's Wednesday. The movie comes out Friday, but now you're telling me I was accurate all along. So I don't know when this movie's coming out. Um, I saw it two weeks ago. <laughs> I, have, I might end up going to see it a, a second time at, at, at some point, but. Uh, if you have not seen the movie, which I imagine is most people, we're not really going to be getting into like the spoilers, uh, spoilers. Yes. I think people know how the story ends, but we won't be getting into the specifics of the film itself. We will let you all go watch and judge for yourself. This is more so a look at the Von Erich family with someone in Irv Mushnick who was covering this family in real time back in the eighties and wrote a pretty well-known feature in Penthouse magazine of all places in 1988 entitled Born Again Bashing. And um, it was a pretty like eye-opening account of the Von Erich family and sort of the the mythology that had been built up by Fritz of his sons. And the chronology of this article coming out was after, after Mike Von Erich had died. This yeah. followed the death of David Von Erich, but preceded the future deaths of Chris in 1991 and Carrie in 1993. And suddenly this kind of, this family being marketed as the wholesome Christian family, it was starting to turn into a pretty dark tale. And little did we know in 1988 that there would be more to come. But that is kind of the crux of this film, that it is very much about the wrestling industry, but also about just a a family with a pretty dominating patriarch in Fritz von Erich that um, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be learning about kind of the specifics of the story for the first time once they see the film. Yes. Excited to go see it tomorrow. Well, we are also going to be rewinding and looking at 2023, quite the year in professional wrestling, the year that we can state that 
WWE was officially let out of the control, at least sole control of one Vince McMahon or his majority control of the company as would you say that is a clear number one story of the year, the merger between the UFC and WWE? I would say it has to be. Um, even besides the fact that UFC is sort of in some ways related to, to the wrestling world, um, the biggest wrestling company by far that's ever existed being acquired and merged with another major live sports company is, is the biggest deal. Um, and I think uh, as a preview, I guess, to, to your Christmas show, if you were to put somebody's face on the cover of the annual report for the pro wrestling industry here in 2023, I guess it would be Ari Emanuel, who is now he's in, in charge of a lot of things. Right. But the, he's also in charge of ultimately WWE. I don't think he's necessarily micromanaging it and weighing in on storylines and creative at all. Um, but he is he is the boss uh, overseeing TKO. I'm very curious to see, like, as we go into 2024, like, we're still somewhat setting the table of what a, what an endeavor controlled WWE is going to look like and some of the, the changes with it within the company culture, the, what are considered priorities, what practices are abandoned that have sort of been drummed into that WWE culture for a company led by Vince McMahon. I mean, this is all still very fresh. And if we have some indications, it's uh, reporting over the last week or so about several resignings in the company where it sounds like these are very lucrative deals that WWE is trying to lock down performers such as the Mysterios, Charlotte Flair, and would at least indicate that it's not so much a case of them really um, sealing the purse strings when it comes to locking down talent for a longer term. Yeah, I think that's probably consistent with what we hear about UFC, right? In terms of it's still Dana White running the UFC. They're, he's not uh, being, being, you know, micromanaged by people from Endeavor, right? That's the impression that we get. Whether or not their athletes are being paid on par with athletes in other sports, another story, but they have independence to run the business as they see fit. I was thinking maybe we would move on over and Dominic would be on like a, you know, three fight deal, 50 and 50, you know, win bonus. Mm-hmm and uh performance bonuses uh in- introduced uh but no it uh it looks as though even the uh, the early returns and a a Ray Mysterio no less who uh, Nick Houseman is reporting it's about a, a 3 year deal which is going to take Ray north of 50 that he will be under contract and i would think at that point Ray will sit down and state you know what i think i've got another contract in me who's the oldest person to ever do a springboard um has anybody it- the age of 50 successfully done a springboard wrestling maneuver we had um, Mike Jackson, that independent wrestler. Is he springboard? That, uh, I, I feel he's done a, a springboard or two uh, in his time. <laughs> Ray, Ray, might, Ray might be the one that – I mean, this was a guy in around 1999. They were telling him coming down on off of any distance is not great for your knees. That was in 1999, and here we are. Yeah, well, Man's probably as... going to make it to 2000, 2029 by, by this rate. I, I would not be surprised at all that he – is going is going to push it to to that level. Yeah, I guess that must be why he started to do the flying butt senton cuz then the, guy, the other guy can just take the impact entirely. So, I guess as we as we look at sort of um you know the who won, who lost 
in 2023, Brandon. I want to throw out the name Vince McMahon that we can discuss a little bit about. In some ways, you could look at how this man maneuvered his return to his company in 2023 and then orchestrated this this merger. And as things stand right now, I mean, he's in a prominent position in the TKO hierarchy. He's got all expense paid trips to Saudi Arabia. He is now you know, lending his voice to members of the media uh, to do scrums. Where is Vince McMahon in terms of his uh, power structure in 2023? And would you call this a good year or a bad year for a guy that was the subject of a grand jury investigation this year? May still be for all we know. Um, he, what a maneuver to he's, he's really put another uh, meaning, meaning to that phrase. He, he, he maneuvered his way back into the company. And I guess he's in a better position, certainly in his view, than he was um, one year ago. Yeah, where he was out of the company, he was trying to get his way back in. Uh, there were letters being written between himself and the board of directors. And uh, he's definitely richer in terms of liquid cash. He got a, what was it, $111 million dividend, one-time dividend for the closure of the deal. Um, so he's, and he's, a, he's an employee. Again, he was a member of the board of directors only for a few months in January of last year. And then we saw around the time of WrestleMania, an employment contract came out for him. So he's presumably still under something like that. Um, so he's got a lot more money. He's got a lot less control in WWE, but it's better off than where he was before he forced his way back in the company, right? Because he, you know, he had no position in the company other than being the controlling shareholder, which he exploited to cause his return. And he has, we can speculate about how much influence can, and, and how involved he is day to day with WWE. Reportedly, he's only involved in helping make the TV deals. Um, and there's still raw left to be done there. Uh, he's reportedly not very involved with creative, but my God, Paul Levesque just loves having him a, a phone call away because he, you know, he stands on the shoulders of giants and Vince is that giant and you can call him up. He's got so much experience, right? You can call him whenever you want. And, uh, hopefully he doesn't call you when he sees something on TV that he doesn't like, but he's there and he's definitely in, I would say sort of an emeritus role. And he's less involved in creative than ever. And that has resulted over these last 18 months or so in positive returns when it comes to TV ratings and attendance. He doesn't strike me as somebody that has the attention span to have a hands-off role over time. Like this might feel like a, this is better than the alternative where to the public I was on the outside looking in for the first time of my career, which was the case for the last half of 2022. But I mean, this is somebody that notoriously, I mean, very few hobbies, very little, like this is a guy that always pro professed that, you know, he would, he would work until his last days that he was on this planet. And I guess the, the question becomes like, he was obviously of vital importance to Ari Emanuel to have in this inner circle. And I guess that is between them of what is the game plan for a Vince McMahon? How do we utilize this individual that we, we, felt the need to have inside, um, but also somebody that I, I think is going to want to be tasked with some control. Like that's that's a very difficult transition to go from the number one, even to the, the number two position. And now you are under someone and that is going to essentially dictate your fate. I was re-listening because I'm cutting up some some clips that I might use uh, at some point later. But I was re-listening to the CNBC interview that they did just after the merger was announced and listening to to 
Ari and Vince talk sort of in passing. It's only like a 15 minute interview, right? But they sort of get, they mention in passing how they had discussed this earlier. Uh, they, they discussed, you know, doing a merger earlier. Maybe it sounds like Ari's saying around the time that they purchased UFC, they discussed maybe combine WB and UFC or an endeavor in, in some way. Um, in, in Ari's view, I mean, clearly they're friends. That's legitimate, I think. But in Ari's view, maybe it's, it's safer to have him in than out anyway, because at least when you have him inside and, you know, you're keeping him happy with giving him, you know, big rewards like pay, like dividend payments. Um, he's less unpredictable and, and less volatile when you have him in your company rather than out at this point. Um, but with, with what we've learned about, you know, his, his back surgery, maybe he's also not in the physical condition to, to be traveling all the time either. Except for Saudi Arabia. He will, yes, he will just grin and bear it for, for that flight over. Well, the hospitality uh, is so good there. So. Well, that's that. That is the key. We will see if Vince pops up at the next. Uh, well, will, will Vince be at that fight night event yeah, for the UFC in March? Maybe that's the more interesting one. I doubt it. Will we ever see Vince on TV again, like live in person? Like, I guess on WWE television. Yeah, he could have been at WrestleMania, I guess, but probably not. I would think. I can't disqualify the idea of him doing another cameo. I, yeah. I don't think as. I really don't think they would want that attention of like, for instance, a, a hall of fame induction for a Vince McMahon. I just feel that would be such a, like, I, I don't doubt he would come out and he would be just treated like a God from the, from this audience. But I just think it would be such a, um, not the spotlight you would want to place upon your company on, on such a significant weekend for you that I just, and I, I couldn't possibly see Vince even wanting to participate in something like that. Right. We, we've heard for years, right, that you're told not to mention Vince's name in your Hall of Fame speeches because he doesn't want to make it about himself. Um, but no, it's, it's been a, a year for him in which he, he seems to get the things that he wanted, right? And he was on the outside and now he's not on the outside anymore. And that's what he wanted. Um, and I'm sure so, he great. I mean, he's pretty much said as much in those exchanges. Like it was, he didn't want to leave in and thought he got bad advice to leave in the summer of 2022. And while you may have a, um, a moral argument against that sentiment, I can't state that he was probably wrong that if he had just, um, taken more of a backseat role during the, the scandal, would it have just passed? And he would have been essentially bulletproof from removal from, from the company. It's hard to argue that he would not have been. Yeah. There were apparently, I mean, according to Stephanie, who seems to be on, on the opposite side of the interest here, but according to Stephanie at the one, uh, conference that they did in November of last year, that it, it did have some impact on their ability to make advertising deals. How, how real was that? I don't know. Um, but it, it could have been an, enough to, for there to be some apprehension around a lot of advertising and, and sponsorship, sponsorships. But, um, and that's another story is that, you know, Stephanie McMahon is out of the picture permanently and it doesn't look like she's coming back anytime soon we haven't really heard anything from her since she resigned last year january or this year january absolutely zero indication of what the next chapter is for stephanie mcmahon who i cannot imagine there's not going to be some movement for her and not even so much in the wrestling industry but just professionally anywhere i mean she has kept a ultra low profile aside from that appearance at the survivor series which she was never shown on camera oh, never that's right Never referred to, but then it was just afterward that you saw photos come out of her in attendance. But front row I mean, it, too. That was very curious that, you know, just 
a quick on cam, you know, identification of Stephanie McMahon was avoided. Right. Yeah, I mean, it m- m- probably doesn't indicate that much if they weren't going to highlight that she was there. Um, yeah, that's really curious. I, I, you know, when we've talked about this in the past, I would always speculate, you know, maybe she'll end up doing something in philanthropy, some sort of charity organization or something like that. But we don't know. I, I was looking at her uh, her resignation statement earlier today and noticing that, you know, her her Twitter bio says something to the effect of WB fan, among, among some other things. But that, that that's one of her uh, identities is that she's a WB fan now. Isn't wouldn't she be a member of the universe? Yes, universe member. Yeah. What what are these fans you speak of? I'm not I'm not familiar. I think it does say fans. She says the dreaded word fan on there. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, would you would you classify like did Stephanie have a like how how would you assess this year or is it just sort of an incomplete because we really don't know what her next step is going to be and it was a year where it seemed like she was brought in as insurance as backup once Vince was rife with scandal and then i mean i'm certain there is a lot more that is not out in in front of us in terms of the that dynamic at play between father and daughter and sort of this musical chairs of seats at the table in wwe yeah it's 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 hard to to say a lot about it without getting into the palace intrigue but it seems suggestive of some sort of conflict between vince and stephanie that she leaves about a month before the wall street journal stories start coming out um they start coming out. Vince resigns. She takes over his roles. Uh, Vince forces his way back in. And then days later, she's out. So what, what's the story there? So maybe someday, uh, maybe someday she'll, she'll finish her book and, uh, we'll find out. Lady uh, balls. Yes. Yes. Never, never got it. It's the, the draft is sitting somewhere in a filing cabinet. Yeah. Somewhere in WWE coffers, there is a Stephanie McMahon manuscript and a Paul Heyman one that just never saw the light of was day. There a, is there a Paul Heyman one that was? Paul Heyman was not, it was not an official WWE one, but when Bro- Brock got a book deal and it was a two book deal, one was to be Heyman writing Brock's book, which is not a very good book. And then the second one was supposed to be Heyman's and the Heyman one just never came out. Okay. Do you remember a few years ago that they had hired a team that had done, I think it was like some oral history of MTV and they were going to do an oral history of WWE. And this was a WWE back project. They were going to have access to everyone. And this was around 2018. And again, another quiet book project that just totally disappeared. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. And will we get the Netflix documentary in 2024 of Vince McMahon? I'd say yes. I think so. Yeah. I mean, Bill Summons has brought it up every now and then, and it seems like it is, it is alive. It is well, and is going to be a multi-part series at some point. And maybe they're just waiting for a suitable ending, uh, unless maybe the merger. That's that's your ending. How many news aggregator headlines will we get out of that documentary? <laughs> Ten most shocking things that Vince McMahon said in his Netflix documentary. Vince McMahon reveals. Vince McMahon. Yes, it's true. He bladed himself in some of those matches. I mean. Yeah. But I think somebody else who's been a, a good year for is Paul Levesque in that he's at least perceived to to be – in more control of creative, there was that brief period around WrestleMania and the, and the raw after WrestleMania where Vince was, um, I, I really wonder, you know, Triple H went out to the ring to, I think in, in an indirect way, reassure people that despite the merger, WWE is not going anywhere. And then, and then when he came back, maybe he found Vince McMahon, uh, in the, uh, in the office chair at Gorilla and Vince McMahon was, uh, you know, reportedly taking over raw and, uh, 
you know, being very hands-on. Uh, but other than, than, than that and a lot of other things around that time that looked like they had Vince McMahon's fingerprints on them, here we are in December 2023, and Paul Vex seems to be solidly in control of creative. And we're still seeing, I'm, you know, when I look at these market-to-market comparisons for the live events that they're doing and for the, the Raw and the SmackDown that they're doing, they continue to do better in this arena than they did the last time they were there with the same event type. And ratings are still pretty good, especially in the demo. So... You know, he seems to be, you know, he's able to attract talent. He's able to get CM Punk over despite their conflicts in the past. And he seems to be doing pretty well. He's had a lot of wins over this past, I would say, 18 month period. And in terms of someone that has just bounced back, like it was two years ago when like the Paul Levesque stock had dropped significantly. This guy was out of power at NXT he, I mean, he had issue around the same. He had time. the heart issue that was very significant, and it just seemed as though he was off to the side. And there was there was no like, hey, he's going to be coming back soon. It was sort of he was sidelined, and who knew how long he would be staying there. And then all of a sudden, the Vince scandal drops, and he is brought back into the game in a significant way. But if if that doesn't go that way, it's it was hard to know where like Paul Levesque probably he gets back into some position of power at a certain point, but you couldn't have imagined this level where I mean he is now like your sole creative force and not under anyone's thumb. Something interesting to think about in hindsight. Remember that I think it was a Friday? I think it was Friday. Anyway, there was a press release that dropped that just said Paul Levesque is back. This is in like mid-2022. And then I don't know if that was like Friday. And then Monday is you get the Vince McMahon has resigned uh, press release. So like clearly, you know, there had to be maybe Paul Levesque and other people who knew that what, what was about to happen and just sort of setting up that, you know, he's coming back from his health issues and he's he's going to have uh, a, a really involved role again, uh, knowing what was coming down the line. Yes. I mean, you know, sometimes people, they want to retire. Brandon, they've had a great career. It's time to retire. And if any of you took that retirement seriously, well, you were just kidding yourselves, as uh, as one Nick Khan shared with Bill Simmons. Um, other other stories uh, of note that we uh, could, could look at this year. I mean, we and we'll move over to some AEW ones as well. But before, like CM Punk is sort of your uh, connective tissue between both companies. I would state that <laughs> up until t- September, I, I would state that this guy was uh, like this was a clear L for this guy's year. And in the last month, I think that has drastically turned around. And number one, I think audiences are very, very quick to change opinion of uh, in mass numbers. And that return at the Survivor Series almost divorced Punk from all of the negative baggage that he had carried for the previous year since All Out 2022. And all of a sudden, he is... He is spiking business for the company. He is a red. You could argue he is the hottest star in the entire industry and is poised for a WrestleMania main event. Like he could not have ended this on a stronger note after I would say like not to say unanimous um, negativity towards him, but a significant amount that he was leaving AEW with. Yeah, I mean, he demonstrated through the September 2022 fight and then the, f- the fight that happened almost a year later at AEW's biggest show ever, at one of the biggest wrestling shows ever in All In. Uh, he got into a fight again, and he apparently thinks that that's an acceptable way to resolve problems is with a physical fight, and he got fired over it. Um, 
which did not happen at the UFC pay-per-view this past weekend when Sean Strickland uh, went after Drickus Duplessis in the crowd and started firing off punches. And uh, Dana White just took the blame. I shouldn't have sat them so close together. No charges, no fines, no punishments, nothing. And this is maybe, all maybe that's how Tony Khan should have handled it. You know, uh, right. this it's really my fault for letting Jack Perry and, and Phil Brooks get so close to each other. Um, and we'll have a pay per view match for them later. Yeah. So if, if and then at the end of the night, the UFC they replay the footage. They got the footage and they're they got Joe Rogan like breaking it down and such. And they're like, oh, we don't condone this, but we are going to show this on the pay per view. So I mean, it's uh, it, it's interesting the the differences in terms of how um, th- th- this is handled. But listen, I think that. AEW was certainly at a point where there was there was no point of any return with a CM Punk once you had reached this level. They had to make this decision. They did make this decision. And knowing full well that you could be this could have been the scenario. And I think this has been, you know, as much as, you know, you could be eliminating an, an issue that you perceive to be affecting your locker room. You knew that you're handing off your biggest star that you have had in your company's short history and he and WWE had interest in him, obviously. Yeah, and I think the the big difference between how he's handled in WWE versus how he was handled in, in AEW will have a lot to do with his leverage in AEW. He was by far the biggest star um, in WWE. There's a lot more parity. He has a lot more leverage. WWE could fire him tomorrow, and they, they would be unaffected. Um, but AEW was affected by whether or not they have uh, Punk. Um, that that effect was. Less so the, the less novel he became after his debut in September 2021. Um, but we found, you know, CM Punk with a lot of leverage as, as a really big fish in, in a, I don't want to say a small pond, but in a, he's, he's a really big fish in the AW pond that he had more power than he could, you know, that he, than he could conduct himself professionally with, at least in some situations in which he got into physical fights with his coworkers. <laughs> so, so he did not survive that situation. We could do an entire show on the year that Tony Khan has had. I mean, on on the one hand, you had their big one of the biggest shows in pro wrestling history. Period at Wembley Stadium. I'm not. Sure, do you know how many people they drew at Wembley Stadium back in at August? Wembley Brandon? Stadium. I'm told that they sold eighty one thousand thirty five tickets. Seventy two thousand two hundred sixty five of those tickets were scanned for entry, and that's all we know really at this point. Um, I did ask. Tony Khan for the ticket audit ahead of the show saying, you know, I think it's unavoidable. That we're going to have some controversy here. And, uh, he said that they, he planned on announcing an accurate number and they announced that right. I believe is, is the real number of tickets sold 81,035. Um, the government provided, I imagine they have this for safety reasons or something like that, but the government provided that the turnstile count, which is 72 to 65. Um, Tony talked about this the other day, saying that was a higher redemption rate than you would get for a typical major sports event in North America. I think Team WrestleNomics, they may be manning all of the doors at Wembley Stadium next August. They are going to be, you know, with paper and pencil in hand, checking every single person that enters the building. This is the only way this can be we, we, properly. We discussed this. We fantasy booked that ahead of time for All In. Um, if the, you know, if the, if the budget uh, allows for something like that, that's something something we'll definitely have conversations about uh, come next August. Well, looking at AEW's roster, so this was like late 2022, where this was in in the wake of the whole uh, brawl out incident that they announced long term deals that they extended with uh, Chris Jericho and John Moxley. And then this past year, I mean, you were going into contract years where you were able to sign 
Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks, FTR. You signed uh, Roosh to a new deal. You were able to sign Will Ospreay, major signing for them. They signed Okoto Bushi, and you lost a, a CM Punk to offset all of that. But just on on the surface, I mean, they they locked up a lot of key talent this year, while at the same time expanding their programming, dealing with a really significant momentum shift when it comes to WWE's popularity and sort of battling that perception issue now of being the alternative to a product that less people I think are demanding an alternative to. And that's always a difficult position to be in if you are AEW, but as best you can assess the year for uh, Tony Khan, which I know is a very loaded question. We how much time do we have here? Uh, so I, th- I think it's what it what did Todd Martin say when he joined us uh, a few weeks ago. I think he called this a disaster. So it was a disastrous year for AEW. Um, there's, you know, you can look at AEW's year and say, all right, there's this one really, really high peak here uh, that they did with All In, which is one of the biggest wrestling shows of all time. $10 million gate. Uh, it, it, it should be, under, you know, it, it should be appreciated as that. Um, this year for the company, though, was not good in terms of their popularity. Um, yes, they likely made more revenue than they did in any prior year. Were they profitable? Probably not. Uh, but neither was any other year up to this point. They could be profitable if they get a nice TV deal. Um, but this was – it's its really not great for AEW in that they – when WWE is better, when more people are happier with WWE and – I think, you know, I, I agree with Todd in that there's an identity crisis when it comes to AEW and what it's supposed to be and to what extent do they look at WWE and, and its improved fan engagement and say, well, what they're doing is working. Maybe there are some things that we should do that are like them or should you use this, this, this word challenger brand has just, just reduced to having no meaning to me. But when you're supposed to be this alternative brand of wrestling, are you supposed to be something different? What things are supposed to be different then? Um, or is, you know, is it, are there a lot of things in wrestling in 2023 and 2024 that are just, you know, that, that aren't the WWE way of doing things, but that should just be accepted as the way that wrestling should be in the way that fans expect it to be at this point. I tend to doubt it, but that is, that's a question that I think that, that they need to wrestle with and have a, a clear answer to that. I doubt they have a clear answer to, um, and AW in, in light of WWE becoming better is less necessary doesn't mean it can't survive, doesn't mean it can't be profitable, but it's less necessary. And, you know, what are they going to do to become a stronger alternative? Uh, in this year, their TV ratings are down. Their attendances are down. And that's sort of where they are. Uh, and they didn't and probably could have had the sort of talent leadership and talent management to prevent things happening with CM Punk that happened and which resulted in uh, hurting their business, hurt, hurting some, those fan metrics to an extent and, and not having uh, a really big star. Um, so not a great year for AEW, but not the end of the world uh, with, with the one exception of the all in show, which the all in show itself is sort of a microcosm of like this, this can be a really great product. That's really successful. And it can also fall apart uh, when, when, you know, for example, CM Punk fights Jack Perry. Yeah, which was, I mean, the dominant discussion point coming out of this really historic event for the company. And as we look to the next year, obviously, the TV deals are far and away the most important 
story for AEW and maybe even for the wrestling business, which I would put above the WWE deals that, you know, Raw, whatever Raw's deal is going to be, they're going to be in fine shape regardless. For AEW, it very much is going to chart the course of the future of this company based on this television deal and what what the level of deal is that they can secure if they're affected by some of these networks tightening their budgets and and the relationship with with WBD as it pertains to AEW. Yeah, for WWE, they they could get a downgrade in their TV rights fees, right? And that would be bad for the stock, but they would be fine financially. They're already breaking their financial records. They're going to break their financial record this year and probably the next year. And and if they get a, a good TV deal, they'll break it again and again. For AEW, it's a matter of whether or not this is financially feasible. Um, so a much bigger deal uh, for them. Um, as far as I was thinking for, for next year, who's, who's set to have a big year? What are the big questions for next year? I think it's where does Kazuchiko Okada end up? And where does, I can think of somebody else along those lines, where does Mercedes Monet slash Sasha Banks end up? Uh, so the, I think those are some big questions. And where does Shane McMahon end up? Shane McMahon, you never know. The, the holy trinity of free agents that could, could be out there. Well, we are going to shift focus now because uh, this coming Thursday, the Iron Claw is going to be in theaters everywhere. And I'm sure a lot of people, especially that are tuned into our show, are going to be checking out this film. And this is where uh, Brandon is going to feel a little left out as uh, I have had a chance to see the film, as has our guest, who I'm uh, looking forward to having on the show here, um, a noted journalist that has done a ton of coverage on a lot of big stories in the history of professional wrestling, covering the uh, the murder-suicide of Chris Benoit involving uh, Nancy Benoit, the uh, Justice Denied book that he put out covering the death of Nancy Argentino by uh, involving Jimmy Snuka. And his latest book is Without Helmets or Shoulder Pads, The American Way of Death in Football Conditioning. But we are talking today about the Von Erics with this man, Irv Mushnick, who is here with us. And uh, Irv, thanks so much for uh, joining us here on the program today. Hey, John and Brandon. Good to be with you. So we wanted to do a, a show on the Von Erics, and uh, you were our first, our first pick of someone that we would love to have on the show because you did a really um, well-remembered feature on the family. This was back in uh, 1988. It's called Born Again Bashing. That was in the October 1988 edition of Penthouse Magazine. And I wanted to start there, Irv, of how um, that publication was interested in a, a story of the Von Erichs. And just take us back to 1988 in the context of where we were with the Von Erichs that was kind of in the midst of what was turning into a very dark tale involving the, this family. Right. Well, in 1988, I, I was a freelance journalist. You pitch stories to magazines. I mean, that's that's how you did business. And I was also at the beginning of what has turned into a 30 or 40 year obsession with the a transformation of the pro wrestling industry from from the territories to the uh, uh, global brands of uh, w- then WWF, now WWE, and some others. And uh, I, I, I was trying to write a book about it, sell it to a major publisher. I had no success. Uh, many of your listeners will know that I'm the, the nephew of Sam Muchnick, the longtime St. Louis promoter and National Wrestling Alliance uh, president. So I've you know, I grew up in this industry since I was knee high to a turnbuckle, and I felt that I had some things to say about the changes that it was undergoing. So I started writing 
articles for magazines, mainstream magazines, with a, a long-form narrative uh, orientation, which I think it's safe to say we're, we're the first of its kind. There, there have been articles about wrestling, of course, but, but none that looked at the behind-the-scenes uh, uh, jockeying and the cultural underpinnings of wrestling in quite the same way. Obviously, the Von Erichs were a, were a, um, a natural uh, story to tell, it was so bizarre, and um, I pitched it to Penthouse. I had a contact there, and they said, "Go for it," you know. So, uh, so I did, and uh, it was, uh, I would say, along with the Jimmy Snuka coverage, it's the 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 stuff I've written about wrestling that has been most passed around the internet water cooler. There are many bootleg versions of it out there. Uh, it became the first chapter of my uh, 2007 book, Wrestling Babylon, and, uh, and 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 when the movie, when I heard the movie was coming out, I was initially contemptuous of it because I didn't know that it was such a, it was such the sterling production that it turned out to be. I went to a screening in San Francisco yesterday. And I was quite impressed, and I thought it was going to be one of these like dark side of the ring, schlock things uh, that I have little respect for. And I thought the whole thing was going to be the joke over my, you know, over my suing them over infringement of my intellectual property. But Sean Durkin, the director did his own independent research on it. Whether you agree with all of his conclusions about Kevin Von Erich and his brothers or not, there's no denying that he, he has a, he has a take he has a coherent take. He worked very hard to put it together. The actors worked their asses off to to uh, portray the you know verisimilitude of wrestling and that particular milieu in Dallas in the in the early eighties. So I can, I found myself surprisingly impressed. And is it the case that there's one? Is it Mike that's not portrayed in, in the film? Chris is the one who's not Chris. portrayed. Okay, and, and and you know all of us who know too much about this subject have to kind of leave our, our, um, our nitpicking at the door. Uh, first of all, cause there's, there's actually very little to quibble with. Uh, but, but beyond that, um, these, these were conscious, intentional choices made by the filmmaker. Uh, he didn't, he didn't, uh, 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 pretty up the story of Fritz von Erich, which was my main fear. You know, as long as Fritz came off as this overbearing, great Santini-like figure, and they didn't they didn't ladle on the evangelical Christianity, which was a big part of the story, actually, um, I was satisfied that you know Sean Durkin could tell it in its own way, and I could agree with parts of it and disagree with others. I would say another thing, which which is that uh, Kevin Von Erich, who I have problems with. You know, he's the survivor of this clan, and he has he has a personal narrative that I think I haven't been um, as uh, generous to as I, I maybe should have. Um, and I think that uh, Sean Durkin was, and he was determined to tell not a wrestling story, but a story of one person's surmounting all the challenges and tragedies of his involvement in that peculiar world. 
I, I was rereading your your work uh, from Penthouse from from the late '80s uh, earlier this afternoon, and the one thing that I didn't realize, and that I think maybe a lot of rest, a lot of wrestling fans who are you know they're familiar with world class and maybe they've seen some of it on the network, was that how involved the the station KXTX was, and and a, apparently they were broadcasting a lot of evangelical Christian programming, but then they they helped world class TV become what it was. Oh, absolutely, and and um um. That was one of my fears going into this was that it was going to pander to evangelical Christianity. KXTX was the, was Pat Robertson's Dallas affiliate of the Christian Broadcasting Network. So it was, um, uh, a Bible beating was an implicit, you know, part of the, of the whole promotion. In 1988 in Penthouse, I wrote only half facetiously that, that a world class was, uh, was uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker with a drop kick, an allusion to the televangel uh, uh, scandals of that era, Jimmy Swaggart and Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. And I think that that, you know, world class belonged to some degree in that bucket. The other funny thing about it, and it's maybe not so surprising, especially looking at the political landscape today, is that, World class somehow became on in cable distribution one of the most popular shows on cable TV in Israel, and they did an Israel tour. And the scene in in uh, the Iron Claw where uh, Mike von Erich injures his shoulder, which leads to his you know surgery where he contracted toxic shock syndrome and almost died. Um, that that accident actually happened on a, in a ring on the Israel tour, although he'd had an earlier, I think, track high school track and field shoulder injury that was exacerbated by that. So there, there's so many there's so many intricate uh, uh, little angles, uh, uh, many of which were captured to a T in this in this movie, and and the rest of which you know we wrestling fans can uh, can chew over for a long time. I'm curious a bit about your own interactions with Fritz as it as it related to the article in your reporting at the time. Like this is somebody that obviously ha- had a no, pardon the pun stranglehold on the portrayal of his sons, of his family, and that really does come through in the film of this drill sergeant of a father that is absolutely I think I think it's impossible not to see the link here of these sons that are living under this unbelievable like ruling patriarch that they succumb to yeah uh sean sean durkin the director talked in in an in a podcast interview after the screening that i saw in san francisco which was simulcast to a bunch of locations and i know that he did work establishing a timeline he had a lot of details and things that i didn't know about Uh, and i don't think they were fabricated either i mean some of the things were used for dramatic effect, but, but I think that he had, I think he, he knew that the Von Erich story like a book, having said that, I'm sure that the 1988 penthouse article was, was, you know, something of a canon of the, uh, you know, of the factual, uh, uh, baseline of the Von Erich story, even though it stopped with Mike's death in 1987. And there were actually, there was Chris after that, and then, of course, carry after that. Uh, but uh, but you could already you know you could already see the pattern, and obviously the uh, 
the sort of a, a algorithm of the von Erich family and its its so-called curse uh, at the time of, of, of the penthouse article. Um, he has uh, my uncle was still alive at that time. Sam was six months, six years retired in 1988. And uh, I think it was uncomfortable. I went down there. I was there was a there was a public relations handler who uh, tried to fob off the uh, their storyline on me, which I was too smart to swallow because I, I knew I knew what was really going on. And at that time, they had an investor, uh, Bum Bright, who was the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, had bought into World Class, and they had all kinds of plans to do this and that, even though they were in decline at that point. I mean, David had died. Kerry had had his motorcycle injury. I didn't know at the time in penthouse, I said his foot was fused in a locked position. It came out later that his foot had actually been amputated and he was working for years, uh, you know, with a, with a, uh, with a prosthetic. And I, I know that in WWF, like he didn't, he showered alone cause he didn't want anybody to, to see. And he showered with his boot on. It's just a, just a horrible, you know, a tragic story, but, but Sam was uncomfortable, but he was an old journalist. He was, he had been a sports writer himself. He right. said, you have to do what you have to do. Fritz, um, it, it, at one point, and I never talked to him directly, but Fritz, uh, said to me, uh, we will show you the Japanese death certificate for, of David in 1984 in Tokyo, which will show that he died of, 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 uh, enteritis. And then he reneged on that. He never, never showed it to me. And I know that story was a bunch of bull because they told about five different stories. They said a ruptured intestine from a, a hard kick in the ring. They said, you know, it was a, it was a, an infection. And in fact, as my reporting for the, uh, the penthouse article established, it was, it was a placidil overdose. Placidil is a sedative. It actually is the same sedative that Mike, uh, with tragic irony would OD on intentionally, uh, a, a few years later. And, uh, Bruiser Brody came to the, to the Tokyo hotel room and, uh, like any good, uh, you know, uh, a plumber wrestler protecting the business, grabbed the, the bottle of pills, spilled the pills, you know, down the toilet and flush them. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, it, this is one of the things that, that, um, that uh, the, the movie glosses over a little bit, but, but I forgive them that because, um, you know, they did, they did such a fine job in, in so many areas, but anyway, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a whirlwind trip to the Dallas Fort Worth area. I got police records from Dallas Fort Worth airport about, Kerry Von Erich's arrest when he returned from Mexico with all kinds of drugs taped to his body. Um, I think at the time, World Class put out this story on the underground grapevine that the, that he'd been framed by the, by the fabulous Freebirds or some, some such, you know, storyline nonsense. So I had all the documentation. I had all the stuff about Mike's scrapes with the law before his suicide. Um, and, uh, you know, so it went at one point, I got a letter from Fritz saying, since you're not, 
you're obviously biased or something. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. But, you know, as a journalist, I'm, I'm, I'm used to that kind of blow off letter from the target of an investigation on whom I have the goods. Oh, one more thing about Sam Muchnick, which is he is, he is name checked in the movie actually inaccurately because Sam retired in 1982. And there's a scene where Fritz and the microphone in the middle of the ring at the sportatorium says, Sam Muchnick, you know, world class is the, best thing in wrestling right now. And David deserves, you know, my sons deserve to have championship shots or, or something to that effect. And I think that was, that was not a mistake on Sean Durkin's part, but it was his, um, it was his effort to convey to the insider audience that, uh, you know, that he knew Sam Muchnick's importance in wrestling history of that era, if not that exact moment that was portrayed in the movie. And the, and the movie is full of little things that he drops in. Like um, when they talk about Kerry's run in WWF, they, they make a reference. He said, you're better than Jim Helwig, who is the ultimate warrior. And like, who would know that except, you know, except us fans. And it had no, it had no purpose, but I mean, Sean was like laying down his bona fides and, uh, and, and he did a good job with it. He, the casting I don't know about Jeremy Allen White, five foot six, as as Carrie Von Erich, who is the who is the uh, uh, the most natural superstar of the boys. You know, was the most popular. He had you know an unbelievable Conan the Barbarian physique, which somehow got grafted onto Zac Efron as uh, Kevin Von Erich. I guess because he was the star of the movie, and 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 Zac Efron's physical transformation for this role, which a lot of actors do all the time and brag about in their publicity interviews. Uh, it, it, to me, it creeped me out. It was unnecessary, but, uh, but you know, this is Hollywood and this is what these um, insecure narcissistic actors in mid career crisis uh, do in order to put themselves over. As I mean, he, look, he looks like the incredible Hulk in this movie. Like, he, I thought he, he was, he looks ridiculous. I mean, he, he he doesn't even look like any wrestler I've ever seen, except maybe Ivan Putski uh, in a tanning bed 24-7 for a month. You know, veins popping. I don't think uh, the last couple of years nurses had any problem finding veins to give him COVID shots, that's for sure. You know, it's it's obviously like a very difficult question to answer, but like all these years later with your reporting, this story is fresh. Having just seen the film this week, like, do you look at the, the sons of Fritz von Erich? Like, do you see them in the light of victims that were just born into a family that was so rife for all of these problems while at the same time, balancing the fact that these were adults that were finding themselves in trouble with the law with drugs, they were dealing with fame at, at a very young age. Like you can certainly make um, a, a lot of different arguments e- either way here. But I think I think many will come away from this film looking at them as had these sons been born to a different father, would their fates have been different? No question that I'm more sympathetic to to Mike, especially sure. who is well por- portrayed as someone who really, um, and I didn't get into that, that so much in my penthouse article, but I trust the essential accuracy of your saying he, he actually knew that he should have a different life, uh, because he didn't have the physical attributes and the, uh, the mental, 
uh, sort of state to, to, to go into that strange business. I have, I have sympathy for Mike. I have sympathy for Kevin that I didn't used to have. I think he's a more complex figure than I realized and understanding how he survived. And I, and, and, and the film does a good job of showing that he survived because he was the one who found something to live for outside of wrestling. I think is, yeah, I think is, uh, it, it is quite moving and, and, and persuasive. And, and, you know, as a, as a journalist, I've never been after bashing individual personalities so much as telling the, I think, unbelievable cultural story of how this fringe form of junk entertainment became uh, a global franchise and how it's, uh, it's sort of ways of expressing itself uh, in infiltrated like every aspect of uh, political and cultural life in uh, bread and circuses, America in late American empire. Um, and I feel you know, like all these years later, thoroughly vindicated on that score and confident in the accuracy of everything I wrote about individual cases. But I think, you know, um, I, I, I do feel more for, some of the individual players and what they, what they went through. And after seeing this movie, I, I feel more for the binary kids and I'm, and I'm, I'm relieved that they didn't, they didn't give it some sort of Christian gloss and make, uh, make Fritz this, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, this, uh, favorable character. He's obviously the antagonist of the movie. He's the great Santini in a 10 gallon hat. I would also be um, interested to know your your thought. Just, I mean, here you are, like, writing about this in 1988, where, I mean, to this day, we, we talk about, like, the level of seriousness that the overall mainstream gives to professional wrestling. And we can even look at some of the handling of, like, the Vince McMahon uh, sexual allegations, where you saw outlets, like, it was still almost like this tongue-in-cheek reaction to um, very, very serious stories. Like, have you in your time seen an advancement in, in that light towards where professional wrestling is like, these are very real scandals. These are very real deaths and it doesn't always require like the, the punchline at the end of a headline or a news article. Right. Well, I don't want to get too much into, into politics and culture wars and all that, but I would say something inside out to your observation, which is that, which is that, uh, and not only uh, do we not take these things seriously in wrestling because we're, we're very abstract and uh, 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 about, about these things to, uh, to an extent that, you know, like maybe Weimar Germany and decadence was, uh, was, was similar, but, but wrestling style has infected our, our political discourse and, and the, and the way we take seriously things involving, you know, our political leaders, Donald Trump and all that. I wrote, I wrote about this in, in, in some depth in the uh, introduction to the third historical edition of Chris and Nancy, the book about the, uh, the Benoit murder suicide. I mean, somehow Donald Trump of the uh, WWE hall of fame is, uh, is, uh, is emblematic in this like almost explicit one-to-one correspondence with, uh, Wrestle world and its uh, its impact on the larger society. 
which I think is a, a negative one. Well, Irv, um, thank you so much for for jumping on with us uh, to chat about uh, this subject. I would encourage everyone to go uh, check out um, Chris and Nancy, uh, Concussion Inc., Justice Denied. And uh, if you want to read this article, it is in his uh, 2007 book, uh, Wrestling Babylon. And did you uh, quickly want to mention um, your most recent book um, that you put out? And I understand you also have um, a big release coming up in 2024 through ECW Press. Yes, thanks for that opportunity. My book that came out in October is about is called Without Helmets or Shoulder Pads, The American Way of Death in Football Conditioning. And it 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 uh, talks about not concussions, which I did a book about and which is the, uh, the hot subject when we talk about football harm, but the overall, uh, area of football harm, especially for youngsters and the fact that, uh, every summer like clockwork, one or more kids drops dead in North America without making a single blocker tackle in anger just from the over the top, you know, conditioning drills of, of, uh, autocratic football coaches and i and i'm trying to uh uh get people to think about the future of this very popular but fraught sport in a different way and next year quickly i'll just say i have a book about more than a a decade of my research into the uh horrible story of uh a sexual abuse in usa swimming and in swimming programs around the world and the Olympic movements, cover-ups of them, which I think are uh, equal to or greater than the familiar story of the uh, USA gymnastics scandals, which, of course, is very horrible. All of the information can be found at concussioninc.net. And Irv, I know you don't do a whole lot of uh, interviews related to professional wrestling, so I want to thank you just for uh, joining myself and Brandon. Uh, I've been a long admirer of your work. You've done so much important reporting on professional wrestling where um, sometimes that has been hard hard to come by in a lot of significant outlets that you've uh, written for. So um, it was great to chat with you, and uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. You're, you're very so much, kind, Irv. and I, I, I enjoyed the dialogue. All right. Well, have a great one, Irv. We'll talk soon. Thank you. That was Irv Mushnick joining us. And now we can say we've had the nephew of Sam Mushnick on the show. That's our uh, six degrees of separation from uh, Sam Mushnick here on Pollock and Thurston. So when you do see the film, uh, we we definitely should uh, chat about it when you uh, when you get a chance. Yeah, I uh, I I read Irv's review of it earlier today when he sent it to us. And do you you think there's going to be Oscar nominations because of, you know, from this film? I think there's going to be a lot of, I, I think potentially, yes, yes, I could see it. Wow. It's um, like overall without like getting into all the specifics, like I think people are going to come away and this is going, this is certainly going to be the most uh, critically acclaimed pro wrestling movie, at least since the wrestler. And yeah. I think that's going to be the debate between people because those are going to be the most known pro wrestling films. No nominations of- for the wrestler, right? Um, it was um Mickey Rourke got nominated. Did he? Okay. Okay. Yeah, he got a he got a best actor nomination. And um yeah, that that was where WWE they wanted nothing to do with this film. And then I believe the nominations were released. And then they were on board and Mickey Rourke came to do WrestleMania and then it was the greatest film ever. So I am curious to like certainly we have the Von Erics uh appearing on AEW and trailers have been airing during WWE programming. But okay. I think there's gonna be a lot of attention that this film gets because beyond a pro wrestling movie i mean this is just you're gonna have a lot of people that are gonna be hearing about this von eric story for the first time and then when they leave the film and go home and realize well there was more tragedies they had to like 
let lower the amount of tragedies to fit it all into this film. Like it's, it's very difficult to explain the Von Eric story to someone that's never heard of this. And for someone to compute that this was um, the outcome for this family, like one tragedy after the other. Yeah. I mean, it's, people have said it for years that there's, there's so much tragedy. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't write a, a book or a movie this way. There's, there's so much in all of the sons dying. Um, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, how much attention and how much success the, the, the movie gets. I guess we'll have to start charting, um, box office uh details oh, man box um, office nomics but i think it'll you know if it's this is a really you know well-known film i think this will you know this will be the thing that people probably point to and if this is a big thing in culture about this is this is the von eric story so it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out after you know i think we as wrestling fans have heard about this story for decades and after uh the glow series on netflix young rock and now the iron claw does this get Chavo Guerrero Jr. onto the Hall of Fame ballot? Is he involved in all of those? He was. He worked on the wrestling scenes on all of those. Like this guy has now carved out. Like this is he's somewhat become the go-to person when it comes for uh, wrestling uh, movies and television series. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Hall of Fame. If as, as you know, people who follow the Observer Hall of Fame know the Von Ericks, and it's stated that way, the Von Erich. Is it stated the Von Erich family? The Von Erichs are a candidate, right? Is, yeah. is it? I think it's Kevin, Carey, and David. That's, I think it's those three. Right. So it doesn't include Mike and Chris. So if this movie does really well at the box office, do you add that to their case as a draw? Wow. <laughs> Definitely did not think about this um, in the past two weeks uh, of all of this. I, I don't know if necessarily that's going to be a reason for it, but I will say this. The Von Erich story is very much going to be revisited and covered significantly. And I do feel like the Von Erichs are at least going to be reassessed in terms of um, candidacy. I mean, the negative is just it was such a short period of time for them that that they had. But in terms of how many figures and you can argue like the reason they are getting this kind of Hollywood treatment is not so much because of the wrestling careers, but the, the demise, the like the horror of, of this family. But I mean, they are going to be at least for these next couple of weeks, probably um, like you're going to have more people than ever that are going to be looking into this family, looking into the history. And you would think that that's going to correlate with, you know, a, a bump next year. And you already had a number of people that already felt that this was such a seminal period in pro wrestling history and a program with the Freebirds and a territory that I think people are just fascinated by because of both this, um, just the, the time, the place and the, the legacy of this territory that beyond the Von Erics, like your Gino Hernandez's and Bruiser Brody's of like people that did like die in these tragic fashions from this territory. Yeah. I guess whether or not you can say that this, whatever money the movie draws should be attributed to their case for the hall of fame as candidates. I think it will just as we, when we see people who pass away and, and people reassess their careers or they're just thinking about a lot about these candidates, even though the voting is limited to, I don't know, a few hundred people or whatever it is. Um, this will probably help their case in the Hall of Fame, I would think. Um, look at this. Oscar-worthy? Probably not, as I thought it flowed almost too quickly. This is uh, from someone that has uh, seen the film uh, weighing in on it. Um, again, I, I don't, I, I don't want to like color people's thoughts until they see it. I'd rather people see the film, and then we'll give, uh, give all of our thoughts. Myself and Way are going to be doing a review of the movie next Wednesday 
on the post wrestling cafe. So um, that will be uh, our chance to, uh, to chat about the, the film as well. So there you have it. My one final name I want to throw your way, uh, whether he had a good year, bad year, somewhere in between Brandon, Dwayne Johnson. I, I don't now recap. Now to recap this year. Um, okay. This is black Adam came out in 2022, but I think, I think he was still kind of wearing some of that as we went into this year, he had the XFL launch mm-hmm. with his partners at uh, Redbird capital, uh, young rock canceled this year. Um, you know, he, he is someone that at least this past year, I think people were looking at, uh, th- th- there were a few like arrows throwing Dwayne Johnson's way. I mean, he went from, I think being the, impenetrable Hollywood star that it was just a um, just an advertiser's dream. And I think you, you did see, you know, I think the black Adam thing did accelerate some criticism uh, towards uh, Dwayne Johnson, but just overall in, in his standing, do you have a, a solid uh, footing here on Dwayne Johnson, 51 year old uh, that will play Mark Kerr in a uh, upcoming film. I, I I don't follow the show business uh, well enough to have an opinion. Oh, come on, about Dwayne Johnson. But uh, we'll get Matthew Bellamy on the show for uh, his breakdown of uh, Dwayne yes. Johnson, maybe. Um, he did appear and on a, on a SmackDown unadvertised. Popped a pretty yes. good quarter hour though. That's I can right. say that. Did uh, have Pat McAfee on the screen with him, um, but uh, popped a really strong quarter hour on SmackDown. And final topic, real final topic. Uh, John Orand is leaving yes. Sports Business Journal. He's going yes. to Puck. Yep. And, uh, hey, in terms of a draw, I think I'm going to sign up for Puck uh, officially. You can after. pre-register now. Yeah, I think uh, I think John Orand is going to draw me in. Um, Maybe I, you should join us to uh, pr- promote his, his new newsletter. John Orand knows that he has uh, an open door here. He has actually given us a news story that when it breaks, uh, he will come on with us. Yes. So you can you can uh, let your imagination go there. But I, I feel uh, a pretty solid that we will get a, a John. The guy's going to do his media tour, I think, before the debut at Puck. Yeah, when, whenever that is, it's not clear, but, uh, and, and who knows if, if uh, Marshall and Orion podcast is going to continue. It sounds like they want it. They, they, they don't know. The show it sounds like they, yeah, this so. was, uh, you know, this news came and now the future of their podcast is up in the air, but very popular podcast that uh, they do. So we will see what the, what the future is. But that's, uh, that's a major get for Puck when it comes to sports business reporting. I would say John Orand is pretty much your, your, your top sports business reporter that that is out there and sports is new for puck right they are creating a whole like separate section like they are diving into sports with john oran which is kind of the level of name that you would want for subscription service like this well you know it's at the intersection of sports and entertainment right oh man are you going to puck too (laughs) no 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 but but if they if they need some some sports uh business coverage uh you know we would be open to that conversation okay well I'm going to go check, uh, make sure that you can't abandon the podcast. That's uh, We're, we're going to retain the podcast rights to Brandon Thurston uh, okay. if he goes. But that is going to uh, wrap up this edition of Pollock and Thurston. We are going to be off next week. So we will return on Wednesday, January the 3rd for a extensive preview of Wrestle Kingdom 18. I am sure we will go uh, look, look at that. We will see where – do you have um, – do you have a thought on uh, Wrestle Kingdom, the buzz two weeks out from what is their big show? I'm very curious about New Japan's placement in uh, 2024. They're going to face, I think, some challenges in the new year to come. Yeah, and no strong thoughts. I mean, what's the big match? Sonata versus Naito? Is that, is that bigger than the three-way? Yeah, that will be the main event, but it is not the main event. I would say your Okada Danielson and that three-way feel like much bigger matches than to, your IWG. To English-speaking fans, I would, I would say, you know, but um, 
no, Sonata has not felt like a hot champion to say the least, right? No, we, I didn't even put him up here on the, uh, the, the power rankings of, uh, mm-hmm. hot or cold. I think people know what the answer is there, but that will be the next time, uh, Brandon and I will be together and you will be back with WrestleNomics th- this weekend, or is that to be determined? To, to be determined. There may or may not be an episode this coming weekend. Sunday, which is when we usually drop the show and do the show, is Christmas Eve. So uh, I will try to put something together, but no promises. As I, I will also be out of town at the time. Well, I can promise you that the annual post-wrestling Christmas show will be coming out on Christmas Eve. And we will see. It's going to be a cavalcade of mystery guests joining us. Uh, you can tune in, find out if our invitation reached uh, Buffalo, New York. It has been a... Very chilly. I don't know what a Canada Post has been like over the past week. Hopefully the invite arrives and we will see um, if the individual here to my right uh, will be joining us on the Christmas show. So we look forward to that. And uh, and a thank you to all of our listeners, all of our viewers uh, for tuning in throughout the year. All of our guests that have uh, stopped by, including Irv Mushnick and to you, Brandon. We've had a uh, I've, I've enjoyed doing this uh, yes. e- each week. Well, thank you for, uh, being coerced into doing this show with me. I, I appreciate it. It's something I wanted to do. When did we, st- I was, I've been thinking, like, when did we start doing it? Cause we sporadically did some interviews here and there on random weeks. And then eventually we started to do this regularly around springtime or something. That's, that's what it feels like for me. I want to say June. I haven't actually gone okay. by. And, uh, when Brandon put the foot down and was like, we need to do this weekly. And I knew you were right. You're like, we, we, we do need to. Do I this think you weekly. insisted. I was like, you don't have to, but you were like, yeah, we can do it. We can do it. It's fine. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's worked out well. I've got my, I've, I've got my routine down now on, on Wednesdays. So, and I, I've really like, I, I wanted to find a, a show to kind of uh, cater towards news and interviews. And this is a, uh, I, I think we've struck a good balance. We've uh, a lot of interesting people that we have spoken to. Yes. And, and John Pollock is a great conversationalist. So. Well, we will see who, uh, who, who drops by in 2024, who, who is just knocking at our door to come on the show and who have we scared off forever. Tune in in 2024. And uh, that's going to wrap it up. So thanks to everyone for tuning in. We'll chat with you in the new year. That wraps it up for Pollock and Thurston.